This is Pastor Devin, and I just want to say thanks for joining us, and I hope and pray that this message is an encouragement to your life today. Well, good morning. It's great to have you here with us. We are in week two of a series that we've entitled The Four Cups, and it's great to have you uh, with us here this morning. Um, We've been talking about these four core promises, uh, the promises of God. How many know that God has made a lot of promises? Well, there are four promises that he made that every other promise flow through and from. They're, they're the core promises that God has made. And, and before we look at the first of those four promises, I just want to remind us this morning of the obvious, and that is this. God never breaks a promise. He never breaks a promise. Now, sometimes it may not seem like he's being true to his promise because it's not going through the filter of our perspective and our preference. Sometimes what disallows us to believe in the promises of God are the fact that other people have promised us things and let us down. And that influences whether or not we believe that God can uphold his promises. How many you have ever been on the other receiving end of a broken promise? Yeah? Three of us are honest this morning. It's great. A spouse, uh, a parent, a child. Politicians make promises. Oh. Mm-hmm. Change we can believe in. Yes, we can. Oh, we did. Yeah, we did. <laughs> now, now, before you get too partisan, how, do you remember this one? Read my lips. No new taxes. Both sides do it. Because it's in us to break promises. It's not in God to break his promise. God never breaks a promise. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 17. When God wanted to guarantee his promises, he gave his word. A rock solid guarantee. God cannot break his word. And because his word cannot change, the promise likewise is unchangeable. We who have run for our very lives to God. I love that. We have every reason to grab the promised hope with both hands and never let go. It's an unbreakable spiritual lifeline. Reaching past all appearance right to the very presence of God. I don't know about you. But I have no interest in serving or following a God that is containable, predictable, or one that I am smarter than. And when we pray, and when we don't get our way, and we get angry at God, what we're actually saying is, God, if you were as smart as me, you would have done it the way that I wanted it to be done, because I know best. And then, when he happens to answer in a way that we prefer, we're like, good for you, God, for getting in alignment with my will for my life. (laughs) if you only acknowledge the sovereignty of God and that he is almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present, when he answers your prayers as you see fit, then you don't understand the promises of God. Because fully understanding God's promises means embracing the fact that he will do it in his way and in his time. We have four kids Uh, One of those is a 10-year-old. We have a 10-year-old daughter who's getting ready to turn 11 on Monday. I can't believe that. Our now 10-year-old daughter is convinced that she can drive my SUV right now. In fact, if I would hand her the keys, she would go out and unlock it and crank the thing up and think she's going to drive off in that thing. She thinks she can drive my car. 
Dad, can I drive the car? No, you can't drive my car. You're 10. Now, I am not a bad father for withholding the blessing because she's not ready. So what, what do I say? I say, sorry, honey, not right now. The gift would be your curse because you're not ready to receive it. And the thing that from your perspective could bring you joy and freedom in life could be the very thing that leads to your death and destruction. Why? Because you're not ready. Often, not always, but often, when God doesn't answer or provide in the way that we're asking, it's because our character is not in position to receive the blessing. Part of getting your character in the right position is recognizing God's sovereignty. He knows best. And fully surrendering to what he wants. Because I have a lot of people that sit across the table from me and tell me about their life aspirations and their dreams and all that they want to see happen in their lives. And they spend a lot of time and energy trying to make something happen and open doors and create opportunities when really they may be in a season when God is saying, sorry, honey, not yet. You're not ready. One thing that changes our character is pain. And sometimes pain comes in the form of weight. Not yet. Don't don't try to build something faster than God wants to build it. Sometimes we try to make something happen when God isn't moving fast enough from our perspective. Let me tell you, speed can kill. It can certainly delay the promise becoming a reality. I know that. So, what do you pray about? Your circumstances or your character? Because your prayers reveal your pathologies. What do you pray about? What consumes your thoughts? Your circumstances changing or your character changing? Some of us, some of us have been praying for a promotion when we might should be praying for promotability. Living a promotable life. Maybe the prayer should sound like this. God, give me the character to handle the promotion. Instead of asking, why are you forsaking me? Maybe you should be asking, what, what, God? What is it that you're trying to teach me, refine in me, purify in me? Here's a, here's a farming principle for you. You cannot plant and harvest at the same time. And in our lives, We often try to do that. So, if in your life it's not harvest time right now, the question you might want to be asking is, God, what are you trying to plant in me right now? Because here's what I know. If you will focus on what he wants to do in you, he will then do something through you. Because God doesn't build ministries, he builds ministers. And ministry flows through people. So we need to focus on who we are becoming in Christ. You remember the story of Abraham? I love the story of Abraham. The age of 75, God gives him the promise that he's going to build an entire nation from Abraham. Nine years goes by, and he and Sarah still have no children. And at 84, I might be thinking, God, you might want to get on this thing, because uh, I ain't getting any younger. What does Abraham do? He circumvents the process of God. He gets impatient. 
and he preempts the promise of God. And he says, well, maybe you could lend me one of your maidservants and we could start this thing because God's moving a little too slow for us. And out of that comes Ishmael. I'm convinced that Abraham initially thought that the promise was Ishmael. And it wasn't. 25 years later, after the original promise, he tells them to get ready for the promise. And at 100 years old, they get the real promise. And although Abraham thought the promise would come through Ishmael, it came through Isaac. Isaac was God's plan all along, but Abraham got impatient. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, listen. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, here's the part we love, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Our willingness to surrender the dream and the promise is sometimes what gives it life. And for some of us, we've been holding on to the dream so tightly as if it were ours, never fully entrusting it into the hands of God. You have to be willing to walk away from it, lay it down, and sacrifice it. Otherwise, God can't do with it what he wants to do with it. So many of us are facing character-building pain of not yet. Wait. I think about friends of mine that are looking for a spouse. You love the Lord, you're serving him. You want to be married so badly. And it's just not happening. And all your friends are out shaking it at the club and finding a man. <laughs> and you're being good, you ain't shaking anything, but you're all doing it by yourself. It's not fair, God. I think about I think about young couples that long to have kids. So many couples struggling in this area. They feel alone, embarrassed, frustrated. It can be a p- painful process. Especially when you come to church or you go to your connect group or every time you look on Facebook, someone else is getting pregnant. <laughs> and you talk to them and they're like, we don't even know what's happening. It's our seventh one. It just happens. I, I just look at her and she gets pregnant. It's awesome. And you're thinking... God, you're giving the wrong people children. Have you seen their kids? (laughs) You made a mistake, God. (laughs) Maybe, maybe it's a lost loved one. Maybe it's your own health. I, I don't know where you feel like God is delaying his promises, but I want to tell you this. God's delays are not denials. Just because he hasn't answered in the way that you saw fit or that you wanted to see it happen doesn't mean that he's saying, no, don't give up. Because God never breaks his promises. And then sometimes God will answer with, I have something better for you. Sometimes our willingness to surrender the dream results in the alternative, which is better. Which was better? Isaac? Or the ram in the thicket. He didn't realize there was an alternative until he was willing to lay down the promise. You have to be willing to lay it down. 
God may have something so much better for you. I don't know if you guys know this or not. This building that we're in today was building number 14 that I had discussions, contracts, meetings, finding the place. This was place number 14. Now, how many know I got a little impatient? So much... (laughs) Hallelujah. Jesus. That's right, baby. So much so that I almost messed up what God's better alternative was. We can get in the way of God's best. And sometimes it's not happening on your timeline. And just because it's not happening the way you think it should happen. We get frustrated because we're not experiencing the breakthrough that we expect. And I just want to remind us this morning before we talk about this first promise. God's promises never fail. He revealed these first four core promises way back in Exodus to the Israelites when Moses was getting ready to lead them out of bondage from the Egyptians. And when they finally came out from underneath the yoke of the Egyptian bondage, they celebrated that event called Passover. They would celebrate. The Jewish people call it Passover, this idea that they could recognize and remember the deliverance and freedom from the Egyptian bondage. It's what we call Easter. It's where we remember and celebrate freedom and deliverance. For Jewish people, it's remembering deliverance and freedom from Egyptians. For us, it's remembering the freedom and deliverance that we get to experience in Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb. And then often we get to remember it by taking the sacrament of communion. We remember the freedom and deliverance that comes through Jesus Christ. For Jewish people, when they celebrate Passover, they celebrate with four cups of wine. They partake of a Passover meal. And each one of these four core promises is talked about and read about in a scripture portion that declares each of the promises. And they celebrate each promise with a cup of wine. That's where the four cups comes from. There are promises of God that have been in existence for 3,500 years. And the same thing that God wanted to accomplish in the lives of the Israelites is the same thing that he wants to accomplish in our lives today. Because they never fail. And they're revealed in Exodus chapter 6. God tells Moses to deliver this message. And Jewish people call them the four I will statements. And with each I will statement, they partake in a cup. Like the Israelites, we need to know and understand these promises. We are all on a spiritual journey. Whether you think you are or not, you are. Because there's a spirit within you. And we always... As the video said, we always long and know that there's more. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, God tells Moses to deliver this message. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, here's the first one, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Promise number two, I will free you from being slaves to them. And number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched hand and with mighty acts of judgment. Verse seven, the fourth promise, and I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Listen, then you will know. Then you know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Four promises, four promises. I will bring you out. This is the promise of salvation. It's what Jewish people call the cup of sanctification. 
getting you out from underneath the yoke of bondage. And then after you're saved, he wants you to experience the next three. I will free you. Freedom. Jewish people call it the cup of deliverance. We'll talk about that next week. And then I will redeem you. This is the promise of restoration, which simply means getting you back to your original intent. What God originally designed you to do, Jewish people call it the cup of redemption. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. And then finally, I will take you as my own people, the promise of fulfillment. It's what Jewish people call the cup of praise. How many know after four cups of wine, there's some praise going on? There's something going on, I know that. We'll conclude the series with that fourth promise. Uh, here we go. First, first promise. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. I will bring you out from under the yoke. Notice, God doesn't start with, I need to change you. You need to be praying more. You need to be reading your Bible more and living a holier life. No, that stuff comes later. He says, first, I just need to get you out of there, out of your current condition. And that current condition is that you're under a yoke, a heavy load. You're under a bondage of slavery. And for them, it was slavery to the Egyptians. Before we can talk about your purpose and why you're here, God first has to get you out of there. If you go back to the original story, the Israelites have been put under slavery. They're serving Pharaoh and the Egyptians, slaving all day in mud pits, making bricks. Actually building some of the wonders of the world, pyramids, temples, things like that. Here's what's interesting. As you look at the bondage that Pharaoh had put them under the same spirit that was on Pharaoh as a leader to treat the Israelites that way. That same spirit is alive and active today. It's the same spirit that enslaves people today. The bondage hasn't changed. The yoke of bondage still exists today. And there were three decrees that Pharaoh made that I think speak to the bondage and slavery that exist today. And the first one was this. He forced them to make bricks. He forced the slaves to make bricks. Now, slavery does not necessarily mean that you are slave to a master or a person. It can mean that. But the word slavery means any time that you are submitting to a dominating influence. So, you could be slave to your habits. You could be slave to spending. You could be slave to bitterness, unforgiveness, a slave to addiction. If you are an underachieving teenager, you could be a slave to a video game. Here's what it tells you. Here's what it tells you. It tells you how to live your life. And most of the time, you don't even like it. The Bible says that sin is enjoyable for a season, but you end up living a life that you submit to living, but you don't even like that life. Here's how people, when I'm, sitting across the table from them, having coffee or lunch. Here's, here's how it sounds to me. They say things like this. I feel stuck. I feel trapped in the life that I'm living. And I don't see a way out. Here's the result. You feel enslaved. You feel enslaved. John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus said, I tell you most solemnly that anyone who chooses a life of sin is trapped in a dead-end life and is, in fact, a slave. 
A slave is a transient who can't come and go at will because they aren't in control. They're a slave. You're stuck. It tells you how to live your life. And listen, if that resonates with anyone here this morning, on the inside of you in any way, you're a candidate for the first promise of God and to take a drink from the cup of salvation. See, see you thought, You thought salvation was just for people that wanted to go to church. No. Salvation is for people that have a sense of being enslaved. Here's the second thing that Pharaoh decrees. The murder of babies. Slaves that make bricks. The murder of babies. If you don't have any familiarity with the story, because of the Israelites growing in such Massive numbers. They estimate about 4 million Israelites existed there in Egypt at the time. Pharaoh is convinced they're going to overthrow the government. So what's he do? He enacts a decree that says every baby boy, newborn, get thrown into the Nile River. Historical records capture that, by the way, even outside of the Bible. In essence, what Pharaoh is trying to do was to destroy the upcoming potential that was in them. In fact, and I don't, I don't want to make a political statement here. But for generations, and it's happening today, the devil has tried to kill babies. And what he's trying to do is stop the potential that's in them. That's why he does it. And some of us today feel like there's potential in us that's being squelched. Of the three, this probably would be the one that is most intriguing to me that I'm most passionate about because I... I don't know if there's anything more frustrating than watching someone choosing to live beneath their potential. You say, well, how how do I know if I'm living beneath my potential? You feel empty. You feel empty. I don't know what life is about. It has no meaning. I'm just going through the motions. I'm clocking in and clocking out. I feel so empty and I'm secretly dying inside. Here's the third decree. Pharaoh makes third one is this. He requires them to collect their own straw. So they're getting up sun up to sundown, 12 hour days, making these bricks all day long in mud pits. And prior to this decree, the Egyptians were providing straw for the Israelites. And then he makes this decree and says, no, I'm just going to add just a little bit more to the length of their day. And now they're going to have to go out and get their straw by themselves. And add some hours to their days. I'm convinced. I'm convinced that it's one of the tactics of the enemy today. He would love to wear us out. I think he would love to get us so busy. Corey Ten Boom said this. If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Here's what I do know. I know this in my own life. And I know it from the lives of the people that I sit across the table from. We make our worst decisions when we're tired. When we're exhausted. We say things that we would never say. We do things that we would have never considered doing before. We're also more easily offended when we're tired. Here's the feeling. You feel exhausted. Enslaved. Empty. Exhausted. Here's when you know. It's a spiritual issue and not just a time issue because I really believe that burnout doesn't just happen when we're doing too much. Burnout happens when we're doing too much of the wrong thing that doesn't matter. 
Because rest is not necessarily just inactivity. Rest is a condition of your soul. Now, that being said, some of us need to get better at managing our time. Because we need to know what to say yes to and the wrong things to say no to. Uh, How many know a vehicle with no brakes is a dangerous thing? You might want to tap on the brakes. I need to know when to stop. I need to know when to fill up. Otherwise, get ready for some wrecks and some running on empty. Because here's here's what happens. When fatigue walks in, faith walks out. And you're too tired. So here's the deal. You feel empty, enslaved, exhausted. You might be a candidate for the first promise. What does he want to do? He just wants to get you out of there. Now, you can choose to stay where you are. I don't know why you would choose to do that. Choosing to live a life beneath your potential. Choosing to live a life exhausted, empty, enslaved. I don't know why you would do that. God wants to bring you out. Just a couple of questions for us to consider. Hopefully we can help lead you to the right answers. This is, here's a question. How did we get here? How did we get here? We have to be honest enough with ourselves to recognize that something broke along the way. And so often, we think of that as a shameful, embarrassing experience to admit a life, that we're living a life that we weren't meant to live, enslaved and empty. And for most of us, we end up in that condition simply by drifting. It's a process that happens slowly, not because we set out to go as far as we could from the truth. Here's the scary thing. We, 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 We wake up one day, And we realize we've moved so much further than we thought that we were. Because moving from A to B, we don't feel that much. But someday we wake up and all of a sudden we're at M or T. And and we don't realize how far we've drifted from the truth. Somewhere along the line we started to disconnect. That could be prompted by something, an experience in our life, by someone letting us down. For some of you, what started that drifting process was the church letting you down. And you found yourself further away from God because of what the church did to you. Can I just tell you, God has a better promise for you. We find ourselves making poor choices, bad mistakes, and by themselves, in and of themselves, They don't seem that bad, but as they begin to compound and compile, we find ourselves so far away from where we started, where we were meant to be. So here's the better question. Thank you for pointing out the obvious, Devin. How do we get here? Here's the better question. How do we get out? How do we get out? If God's first promise and priority is simply to get you out from underneath the yoke of bondage, feeling enslaved, empty, and exhausted, what's my role? How do I activate that promise? Just a few things. Just a few things. Number one, make the move. If God wants you out, you've got to make the move with him. Both physical and internal steps that you're going to have to take. The Bible calls it this, 
repent. Now that's, that's just a fancy word for this. You change direction and go the other way. Some of us need to make a move out of Egypt. Some Christians that are here this morning need to change direction and go the other way. You need to make the move. Jesus came to close the gap between the life that you're currently living and the life that you should be living. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Can I just pause there for a second? Your life of purity has something to do on whether or not you'll be able to move out. And Jesus says, I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Make the move. Here's the next thing. You got to let it go. You got to let it go. There's always something, every parent in the place just heard Anna and Elsa singing. I just want to pause and recognize that and let you have your moment. Okay. Are you back with me? Look here, look here. There's always something that you are going to have to let go of. A past hurt, a habit, a failure, a life-altering experience. Maybe it was a decision you made. I've been in this long enough to know that even when people wanted to make a move with God, they often still want to hold on to something. And that something is quite often destructive, at the very least, distracting. Let me just tell you, God is not going to walk up to you and rip it out of your hands. It's not the way he works. Whatever your something is, you're going to have to offer, the Christian word for that is, surrender. You're going to have to surrender. Now, in every other context, the word surrender has a negative connotation. Because surrendering is equated with losing. Can I tell you, surrendering is the most life-giving, freeing thing that you could ever do. It's the most winning thing you could ever do. Because there's no losing when you surrender to God. Now, I did not say it was going to be easy. Or that life wouldn't have challenges. But I can say this. I just want to remind some of you today, Egypt is not that good. Let it go. Remember the children of Israel? They start complaining and grumbling to Moses. What do they say? We had pots full of meat back there in Egypt. No, you didn't. You were in mud pits, making bricks, getting beaten, and you were in slavery. Here's another tactic of the enemy. He will rewrite your history, and you will remember it incorrectly. And I just want to tell you, Egypt was not that good, friend. Surrendering is one of the most positive things you could ever do. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Anyone who intends to come with me has to listen to Jesus. Let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering, but embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Because self-help is no help at all. I just pause. 
in the world that we live in today that tells you you have enough strength in and of yourself. You can pull yourself up by the bootstraps and I think I can over the mountain and convince yourself it's better than it really is. My friend, that's not the way it works. Self-help is no help at all. Jesus said, self-sacrifice is my way to saving yourself, your true self. Let him lead. Let it go. Finally, commit your life. Commit to it. So it's not enough for you to just come out of Egypt, but you have to commit your life to something. Truth is, we're all committed to something anyway. So now you need to commit to a better life. Your allegiance has been in Egypt, and now it's time to change where you and your allegiance is aligned with. Reassign your heart. Reassign your life to something else, better yet, to someone else. Romans chapter 6, verse 19. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, which leads to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. And if you spend any time enslaved to anything other than righteousness, you would say amen to the things that you've reaped that weren't beneficial in any way. But now, look at this, verse 22. But now you have been set free from sin and you have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness. It leads to it. Doesn't it lead? You say, Lord, I surrender. And it leads to a holiness in your life. You reassign your allegiance. What I love about this is that we started out talking about slavery and the Israelites. And the first type of slavery we talked about was enforced upon them. This type of slavery is under your own choosing. I choose to be a slave. I choose to give my life. I choose to give him everything. Now, some of us bristle at that thought. Becoming a slave. What are you talking about? What about me? What about my rights? Well, we're, we're so concerned in the world we live in today about our rights, aren't we? And Jesus is more concerned about your responsibility than your rights. In a word, that's salvation. That's salvation. It's a promise that God offers, and it comes through relationship. Relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that word, relationship. Ashley and I have just celebrated our 19th wedding anniversary. We dated for three and a half years, so we've been a couple for 22 plus years now. I know we got married when we were 12. It's okay. That's what you're thinking, right? No. You'll think that when you look at her, not me. How many know we've had to work on that relationship? Um, and how many know we wouldn't have much of a relationship if we just got together for an hour each, each week and then we never communicated or never thought about each other until we saw each other again? Now, we, we had time, and we made time, actually, for other things. But we simply didn't make time for one another. 
And then we would wonder why we didn't feel close or why we felt like we're drifting apart or why it's not you, it's me. Sure. We enjoyed the hour that we got together. In fact, we enjoyed it so much that we considered, you know what, we should do this more often. I think this is good for us. But we just never seemed to get around to it. We liked the idea of having a relationship, but we didn't like the work that it required to have a relationship. I think you see this train coming. As you see, here's the problem. We've confused this with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he came that we could have something real with him. Jesus did not come so that you could mark something off your list and appease your conscience. No, he came to get you out of Egypt. But he also came to walk with you and have relationship with you so that you could experience the promise of deliverance, restoration, and fulfillment. But until you have relationship, you can't experience those other promises. In fact, I'm even talking to some folks here today that have been sitting here and thinking, would you hurry up and get to the next cup? I've got this salvation thing figured out. And yet, as I'm talking to you right now, you know in your heart that you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You may have an hour-long visit each week. And it may feel good. Some of us need to commit our lives in a real way, in a new way, in a fresh way. Now, let me just say this. It ain't going to be easy. It's messy. But the vision is to help you grab a hold of these promises of God. At the very least, you deserve to know that these promises can be a reality in your life. And you deserve an opportunity to chase them down. While God will lay out a path before you, friend, you have to take some steps. I get it. I get it. There are a million justifiable reasons why we don't do it. I get it. We all have our own list. Can I just, can I just ask you this? I don't want to offend anyone. How, how's that working for you? Because I sit across the table from a lot of you that say you love Jesus and that say you have a relationship with him, and you've been circling through the same thing for months. And it's going to require... A relationship. Getting the promise of God that has seemed so unattainable. Getting the things of God that you've never been able to get. Getting to a place that you've never, where you've never been is going to require you doing some things you've never done. You've got to commit to it. And I know that's not enticing, is it? You've got to commit to becoming a slave. The most freeing thing you will ever do. You know, it's so like the kingdom of God to take it and flip it on its head, isn't it? First is last. King came to serve. Signing up for slavery is freeing. (laughs) It's how he works. It starts with the Holy Spirit becoming an active part of your life, and it's at that moment that you invite Jesus to have a relationship with your life. Listen, it starts there. It begins there. It's a process. But I know there are a lot of people sitting here today. And you've checked off the salvation thing in your life. And yet at the same time, you're enslaved. 
empty and exhausted. And you might be a good candidate to take a drink from the first cup. Every head bowed. Every eye closed. Thanks again for joining us. If you want to join us on Sunday, we meet at 10.30 a.m. right next to Wilson Central High School or check us out online at connectchurchtn.com. Thanks so much and have a blessed day.